this is out of water. We're talking about the thinking that underlies a lot of our thinking. And today I want to talk to you about overcoming limits and begin with the story of Janis Joplin. Janis Joplin's been called the greatest white female blues singer to ever live. I always loved her music. I really did. I was so sad to know. And of course, uh, by the time I was born, I, or I was, by the time she died, I was only like nine years old. But back in 2008, Brenda and I decided to go see a musical based on the life of Janis Joplin called Love Janis. Now, if it's ever in town, I would really strongly urge you to go see it. Uh, they redid all of her music, of course, and they played it live, which was wonderful to hear it live. But what I wasn't expecting, what kind of caught me off guard, is I wasn't prepared to cry for Janis Joplin. You see, this production was not just about her songs. It was the telling of her life story through the letters that she wrote home. And through those letters, you saw a very different side of Janis Joplin. As a performer, she was very out there, very flamboyant. She, was, she, she commanded the entire stage. But personally, there was this fragile little girl that was desperate for her mother and father's love and approval. And it was painfully obvious from these letters that her parents did not approve of the choices she was making with her life. And everything within Janice wanted them to understand it, to get it, to love her and be proud of her. And it was that inner wounded child that gave her music such depth, but also made her self-destruction so fatal. Now, in one of the letters she wrote home, for the first time in her life, she gave words to this force that was driving her life. She called it ambition, but she defined it in a way that I think we're not accustomed to defining ambition. Listen to this. The need to be loved, need to be proud of yourself. And I guess that's what ambition is. It's not all a depraved quest for position or money. Maybe it's for love, lots of love. Janice's greatest ambition, her hunger, the ache in her soul, her drivenness could best be described as an insatiable desire to be loved and accepted. Can you relate to that? I can, certainly. Every one of us has a craving, a desire, a want to, to be loved and accepted simply for who we are. And when we are denied that in life, it triggers something in people that causes them to yearn and to ache for that acceptance well beyond what would be normal or typical. Now something else you should know about Janis Joplin's life that not just her home environment but even where she lived in Port Arthur, Texas was never kind to Janice. It was deeply wounding. A former high school classmate named Terry Owens was once asked if the people in her hometown were as cruel as Janice has described. And before the questioner could even get the question completed, he said they were outrageously cruel, terribly cruel. On the Dick Cavett show, in a moment of honesty, she said they laughed me out of class, out of town, out of the state. Her publicist and biographer, Myra Friedman, wrote this after Janice's death. She said she was left with little more than the yawning chasm of a tortured loneliness. Now, in case you didn't know, Janice's career only lasted for three short years because on October 4th, 1970, at the age of 27, she was found dead in her Los Angeles uh, hotel room. It was from an apparent heroin overdose. Janet, Janice, like many addicts, what she did is she'd quit using heroin for some time, and then she went back to using, and she went back at the last dosage that she was using at. 
and her body wasn't able to handle it, and it proved fatal. So when Janice sang songs like, Take Another Piece of My Heart, or How Sometimes Love Feels Like a Ball and Chain, she knew what she was talking about, and it's part of the reason why her music survives to this day, because it's real, it's raw, it's honest, and people can relate to us. Now, here's what I know. Experiences of rejection are profoundly wounding, because you and I were designed by God with this real need, a deep need, to be accepted. When we don't get that acceptance from the people that matter most to us in life, it becomes a swollen need. Have you ever injured yourself, maybe twisted an ankle or, 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 or somehow twisted a shoulder, and at the place of injury, your body kind of swells up? Well, that's what happens emotionally, too. We get swollen emotions. And what I mean by that is when we don't get the acceptance that we need, oftentimes is we have this oversensitivity then to any form, to any hint of rejection, coupled with an insatiable desire to get acceptance any way we can. The need for acceptance becomes huge. It becomes larger than life. It actually takes over the driver's seat of our life. Like Janice, it becomes your ambition. So this drive for acceptance is incredibly strong. The fact is, it's the real reason behind many of the things we do. It can influence the kind of friends we choose, the kind of house we buy, the clothes we wear, where we send our kids to school, the kind of mate we pick, many other things. We will do crazy things just to be accepted by other people. R.C. Sproul is a well-known theologian and pastor, and he said, we yearn to believe that in some way we are important. That inner drive is as important as our need for water and oxygen. You need acceptance like you need air, like you need water. It's essential to who we are, to our well-being. So this message is about that gap, that gap between our limitations and our potential. And what I want to suggest to you is that sometimes the choices we make in life are in response to limitations that were placed on us when we were very young. And sometimes the limitations are the result of the choices we made in light of that. And sometimes it's a combination of both, as we're going to see today in the Bible story of a man named Jacob. These limitations that were deposited into Jacob's life by his family became the trajectory of his entire life. If you were to summarize his life in a simple way, you would say he was duped by his uncle, threatened by his brother, dominated by his mom, and rejected by his father. So where I'd like to begin is this first point, launched into life with an ache in our soul. So the first thing I'll point out is the portrait of a dysfunctional family. Now, dysfunctional family is a family where there's been a major breakdown in family relationships, and here are the five symptoms. Number one, estrangement. This is where family members are actually avoiding other family members. Second is anger. Now, it could be expressed or repressed. It could be active or it could be passive, but anger is definitely the dominant emotion. Third thing, a lack of trust. Now, you see this especially around faulty patterns of communication. One of the things most dysfunctional families do is triangulate. Have you heard this word before? Triangulation is when I have a problem with this family member over here, but I don't go talk to that family member over here. I talk to this family member here who will talk to that person about my problem. That's triangulation, and that's what every dysfunctional family does. Fourth, deception. This is the inability to speak truth to one another. And then five, unhealthy secrecy. 
This is the refusal to face the truth about one another, about ourselves. Oftentimes, there's an elephant in the room in a dysfunctional family, and they ignore it to their own demise. Now, it could be said that all families experience all five of these things, so if you checked off all five, don't worry right yet. What I want to say is a dysfunctional family is a family where these traits become the normal pattern of relating. Now, if you were to take this template of a dysfunctional family and lay it over the biblical story of Jacob and his family, sadly, it's a perfect fit. This family is a family that's not working very well at all. You have Isaac the dad, Rebecca the mom. You have the two sons, Jacob and Esau, and all four of them in the Bible are presented in a negative light. None of them comes off looking good. The other thing that is glaringly obvious in the text is that none of these four family members ever appear together at the same time, which tells you, and that's not good, this tells you the family's not working together. It's hanging on by a thread. Soon it's going to self-destruct if they don't face these very real broken patterns that I've just described. So the story begins with a warning, and the warning is about the dangers of parental favoritism. Playing favorites is one of the worst things you can do to your kids. And oftentimes a parent will say, well, I would never do that. But sometimes we send off subtle clues to our children that we actually do favor. In particular, it may be nothing more than a glance, a trace of a smile, a casual pat on the head, a frown or an angry look. But children instinctively know whether they're being loved and accepted. And they will always gravitate toward the parent who shows them outward signs of love. Now, Jacob's a young man, and he grows up without the acceptance of dad. To say it wounds him is a gross understatement. It totally sets the trajectory of his life and his decision for years to come. Genesis gives us almost more than we care to know about this family, and it isn't pretty. And it starts off by saying, Isaac loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So get this. Esau is the strong outdoorsman that dad never was. And so what Isaac does in a very stereotypical kind of way, it's like the dad who has a very athletic son and he decides I'm going to live out all of my dreams for athleticism through my son, all the things I could never be. This is the dynamic that's playing out between Isaac and Esau. But Jacob, on the other hand, is physically weaker. He's emotionally sensitive. And Rebecca kind of takes him under her wing. There's really no question in this story the parents are playing favorites. We would call this a dysfunctional family today. When parents play favorite, what they do, in effect, is withhold love from the non-favored child. Does that make sense? If I'm showing love over here, if I'm, I'm showering my praise over here, and I'm not doing it over here, I'm really withholding love from the non-favored child. Now, there's a famed psychiatrist by the name of Naomi Rosenblatt, and she's actually studied the book of Genesis. This is interesting. I've probably read about three or four books that are written from a psychological perspective on the book of Genesis because it gives us so much information about the early families that formed the nation of Israel. And Naomi Rosenblatt said this, the parents had lost affection for one another, so each had chosen one of their children through whom their primary emotional needs are being met. Each child may benefit in the short run from the intense devotion of a single parent, but this new surrogate marriage between parent and child is fundamentally unequal and frustrating for the child, who needs the balance of both male and female role models. That's what favoritism ultimately does. And I can totally relate to this story because this is my story too. My mom and dad were married for 20 years and they had a terrible marriage. 
And because they had a terrible marriage, mom decided she'd get all of her needs met, her emotional needs met through her children. I was the oldest boy, and I became a surrogate husband to my mother. And she began to divulge and to put things on me about their marriage and the stresses they were under, and I was put in an adult role while I was still a child. This not only robbed me of a childhood, but it just made me feel totally responsible for my parents' marriage. My dad, on the other hand, was emotionally absent from the home. Physically, he was there. He was home for supper every night, but emotionally, he was not there for me. He was not connected to me. Now, you should know, I look a lot like my dad. I'm named after my dad. My given name is Roger Keith Stewart, but my dad's name is Roger. He was using the name, so I couldn't use it. They called me by my middle name. And since I've gone by my middle name all my life, I still continue to go by my middle name, which is really advantageous because when somebody calls my cell phone asking for Roger, I know it's a sales call. They, know, they don't know me, so I can just hang up right away. It's really great. But all my life, I wanted to be like my dad. My father was a, a manager for a propane company. I wanted to go into the gas business. I wanted to be able to do stuff with my hands and build things like my dad did. I look a lot like him, and I copied many of the things that he did. In fact, to this day, the way I print looks exactly like the way my father printed. But for the first 45 years of my life, I can't recall a single time my dad ever saying, I'm proud of you, or I'm glad you're my son. So can you imagine wanting to please your dad more than anything else in the world, but never being given any indication that you did? In fact, I got the opposite. It seemed I could never do anything right in his, in his eyes. If I started to do a project and he didn't like the way I would do it, he'd just take it out of my hands and say, here, let me do it. And he'd do it the right way. He would always remind me that I'd never be as strong as he was. When his mother died, my brother, I have a younger brother, about four years younger than I, we were at the funeral and I was standing by my brother and he was just kind of having a moment. My brother's a real tough guy himself and he's having a moment by my grandmother's coffin I'm standing there with my arm around him and dad walks up in the middle of this and he can see my brother's crying and I'm crying and he says you know I can still kick both your butts I said that's where we're going right now that's the conversation we're going to have I mean it's just being deprived of that affection of that approval launched me into this world with an ache in my soul just like Jacob to try to find what had been denied to me now, the term for this is approval addiction. And approval addiction is very common. Do you know who's most likely to suffer from it? Highly successful people. So here are the characteristics of an approval addict. Number one, they tend to be oldest children. And if not the oldest, the oldest boy or the oldest girl in the family. Second, they have higher than average intelligence. Third, they tend to choose careers in three types of professions. Entrepreneurial positions where they start businesses businesses, high-pressure business jobs, or rescuing professions like medicine, social work, ministry, teaching, and counselors. I like the way Dr. Evans described it. He said this, Satan uses our legitimate need for acceptance in an illegitimate way that can result in living under a false identity. Now, what he's saying is so true. When I really want to be accepted, what happens is this. I contort myself I make myself into what you want me to be so that I will get the acceptance I crave. I begin to live under a facade or a false self. I begin to project out to others what they want me to be so that I can get the acceptance that I crave. But in the process, you lose yourself. 
That's what codependency is. Codependency is first and foremost about a loss of self. It's about this ache in our soul to be loved. So Jacob is launched into life with this swollen emotional need for acceptance. He wants someone to validate him like so many of us do. And he took the meeting of his own needs into his own hands. He learned very quickly how to get his needs met. For Jacob, nothing worked like manipulation. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah says this about Jacob. Brother schemes against brother like old cheating Jacob. So what Jacob did was spend his life lying, cheating, and manipulating circumstances to gain for himself what God had already planned to give him anyway. So he's successful in doing that. But in the process, he struggles, he worries, he labors, he sweats so hard. And if he had only trusted God, he wouldn't have had to do any of that. By the time he reaches adulthood, Jacob can't trust anybody. He's, he feels like he's on, this, on his own in this. Now, what they say in recovery is this, is what we don't pass back, we pass on. And that's proven especially true in the life of Jacob. There's so much to this story we won't be able to go in today, but you should know his wounding shows up first in his marriage, and then it shows up with his children. Issues in our life that are unresolved have a way of kind of playing out until they are resolved. Many times we even unconsciously set up scenarios in the people we date and eventually marry. It's almost like we have an unhealthy need for the wrong kind of person until we ourselves are the right kind of person. Some years ago at the University of Texas, Professor William Swan said this, people with negative self-views prefer even seek out people who will evaluate them in the same way. Does that surprise you? That when you don't have a high opinion of yourself, you tend to find other people who share that same low opinion. In other words, we create relationships that perpetuate the view we already have. I'll never forget there was a young woman in this church who was objectively a a beautiful woman. But she had no confidence in her own looks or appearance. And she had a live-in boyfriend. And this live-in boyfriend, anytime he wanted something... He would just dog her looks. He would run her down, make her feel like nothing, and pretty soon she would acquiesce. It got so bad that she came home one night and found him in bed with another woman. And within the hour, he had her apologizing to him for his affair. And I wish that weren't true. But you know, when you're, whatever your self-doubts, your appearance, your intelligence, your skills as a parent... It is highly likely you'll choose relationships with people who will evaluate you in the same way and will often exploit that when they want their way. Now, it probably didn't help that Isaac and Rebecca named their son Jacob. The name Jacob means trickster or deceiver. You know, I shouldn't be surprised when I call my kid a little liar all of his life that he turns out to be one, right? In sociology, they call it the looking glass self, which basically means the way we see ourselves is very consistent with the way we feel the most important people in our life see us. So Jacob is launched into life with an ache in his soul, which leads us to this, feeling empty and how that controls us. If I can't count on the most important people in my life to love me and accept me as I am, then I will make similar choices to Jacob. I will go about getting my needs met my way. And we see this playing out first at home. Now Jacob knew his older brother Esau was impulsive in decision-making. And Jacob knew how to exploit that to his advantage. One time, Esau comes home from a hunt, he's, uh, and Jacob is in the house, and he's cooking a stew. When Esau smells the stew, he says, I want some of that, and I want it right now. And Jacob said, first, sell me your birthright. So 
The Bible says Esau's starving, so much so that Esau says, I'm ready to die. And Jacob is going to exploit that to his advantage. This is kind of like standing on a dock and seeing someone drowning and saying, I'll throw you this life preserver for a hundred bucks, right? I mean, it's taking somebody's desperate need to use that against them. Now, as a result, and by the way, you should know, this is a major violation of Mideast custom. When a man is faint with hunger, the obligation is to feed them. Even if it was a stranger who showed up at your door, much less a family member. And so Esau's needs don't matter to Jacob as much as Jacob's needs matter to Jacob. And as a result of this little scheme and manipulation, Esau loses his birthright. Now the birthright is all about the stuff. According to law, the oldest child would get two-thirds of dad's stuff and the younger would get one-third. So Esau is going to give up two-thirds, all the stuff, the land, the houses, the farm, the animals, any money in, in hand, He's going to lose his entire inheritance for this pot of stew. And not just that, he not only manipulates him into surrendering that, he also wants Esau's blessing. Now this is more than just about money, houses, or land. A blessing is a pronouncement of acceptance in the presence, but looking to the future as favorable. It's like saying, yes, I'm going to give you all of my stuff, but I give you with that my life lessons, my learning, and all the grace and my wish for you not only to be prosperous right now, but to be blessed for all time. So the way this happens, because Jacob is the second born, he's not supposed to get the blessing. The older brother's supposed to get it. But daddy's getting old. He's getting senile. He's nearly blind. And he asks his son Esau to go on a hunt, catch him his favorite food, prepare it, and then he'll bless him. This is where the Bible says, my son, bring me some of your game to eat so that I might give you my blessing. Now, mom overhears this conversation, and she concocts this plan for, for Jacob to go and kill one of the lamb and serve that instead to dad while Esau's out on the hunt. And this ruse fools dad so much so, the Bible says the ruse convinces Isaac, and he gives Jacob his blessings. Now, Isaac doesn't realize what's taken place until Esau shows up with the food that he's promised dad. But by then, it's too late. Isaac can't take, dad can't take back that blessing. The blessing's already been given. Now Esau is red hot with anger and he's talking murder. So much so that mom and dad have to send Jacob away from the family to go live with their uncle just to save him. So even though Jacob has both the birthright and the blessing, he's going to live without them for the next 20 plus years. He's going to live cut off from the wealth, the servants, the land, the money, the blessing, because he manipulated to get them. Now, because of all this mess, Jacob isn't home when his mom dies. And Esau rebels and starts marrying all these pagan women just to kind of put it in mom and dad's face. Basically, though the birthright and blessings are his, Jacob is going to live without any of the benefits of them. So even though Jacob has his blessings, his dad's blessings, it doesn't feel real. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel natural. Why? Because he got him through manipulation. And he knows in his heart of hearts, none of those words were really meant for him. They were meant for his brother. And so Jacob is still a man in search of a blessing. What I'm telling you is this, is that many of us, what we do when we have an approval addiction, we're constantly trying to manipulate and coerce and get the blessing from people, get people to give us accolades and attaboys and attagirls and give us praise. But the problem is it never really satisfies. Why? Because we know we had to posture ourselves to get those things. 
And we feel like we're getting blessed simply because of what we do, not because of who we are, because what we hunger is to be loved and accepted for who we are. We want to be loved and accepted apart from our performance. We want to be loved and accepted apart from the things that we do. We just want to be loved for who we are. And this is why manipulated blessings never satisfy. Which leads me to this. We find everything we crave at the end of our limits. So we have to skip over a lot of the story of Jacob in Genesis to arrive at this point. But this particular point is where Jacob is finally healed of this insatiable quest for the blessing. The Bible describes the episode like this. That night, Jacob got up and took his wives, his two maidservants, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. Now, the Jabbok is a small river, but you need to know the Bible's not just giving us this name as a geographical marker about where Jacob happens to be. The word Jabbok literally means the place of emptying. Because this is the place where Jacob is going to be emptied of all of his manipulations and all of his coercions and everything else so that he can truly be blessed by God. So get this, after years of emotional and physical distance, Jacob is about to meet his brother again. He's got his family across the Jabbok, and then all of a sudden, Jacob in the middle of the night is tackled by someone out of the blue. We're told in this story that it's none other than God himself. A lot of people believe this to be a Christophany, which would be a, uh, an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ in the Old Testament. But it leads to wrestling with our God image. Now, if you know anything at all about wrestling, you know that wrestling is not so much a matter of overwhelming an opponent by your superior strength as it is a matter of stealth. It's about keeping your opponent off balance and using their own strength against them. One of my board members who's been with me since day one of Spring Creek is Jim Junta. And for those of you that don't know, he's actually over all high school and collegiate wrestling in the U.S. So he's probably the foremost authority anybody could consult on wrestling. And he would tell you right off the bat, it's a matter of tricking an opponent, making them think you're going to do one thing when you do something else entirely different. So manipulation and deception are the essence of wrestling. And remember, this is Jacob's strong suit. That's his name. He's the trickster, the deceiver, the crafty manipulator. He knows how to make you, do, make you think he's doing one thing when he's doing something totally unexpected. So what's going on in this story is God is about to beat Jacob at his own game. This is really important to understanding this story. Because that thinking in Jacob, that way of living, it has to go. Jacob is good at getting others to meet his needs, but that's not really working for him any more than it works for us. This is what approval addicts do. They get good at what they do. I mean, it's a part of the reason why they're so successful in whatever they try to aim for. They aim for perfection. They showcase their best self. But even when others heap praise, it never feels like enough. You know, in the depths of my recovery, God gave me a visual for what my life was like. And I saw myself standing in a field holding a pitcher of water. But this was a plastic picture, and in that picture, there were holes drilled all through it. So that any blessing, any accolades, any praise that flowed into my life flowed out as quickly as it flowed in. Does that make sense? And God gave me this image that that was what my life was like, but that he was weaving his hands around that and mending that. So that when praise and blessing flowed in my life, it would have staying power. That it wouldn't flow out as fast as it had flown, uh, uh, flown into it. 
So here's how the Bible describes what happened. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. So this wrestling match goes on for hours, all night long. Jacob is resisting, he's struggling, he's fighting as hard as he can. When he wouldn't give up and he wouldn't give in, finally God touches the, the thigh of Jacob and wrenches his hip out of joint. Why there? Because it's the strongest, largest muscle in the human body. At that point, the wrestling match is over. Listen to Douglas McMillan explain. You will have noticed something very simple but interesting about wrestling. Even a little knowledge about it tells you that a wrestler depends of all things upon his thigh. Every single throw that a wrestler uses is a throw that centers around one pivot, the pivot of his thigh. If you want to destroy the power of a wrestler, you injure his thigh and he's finished. So that's the end of it. I mean, once God does this and touches Jacob's thigh, the wrestling match is over. All he can do now is cling to his opponent in helpless dependence. Here's the point. You can't get the blessings of God through manipulation. You get the blessings of God when you cling to him in helpless dependence. You see, what the Lord has to do is he has to break us down at the strongest point of our self-life before he can fully bless us. Jacob had to be broken down where he was strong, at the place where Jacob depended on Jacob. Now listen to this important distinction. Don Fortner wrote, Jacob was not wrestling with this man to obtain the blessing. The man was wrestling with Jacob to give the blessing. It's the object of a wrestler to bring his opponent down, to pin him to the ground, to render him helpless, and that was the object of our Lord here. He wrestled with Jacob to pin him down, to conquer his spirit, to subdue his flesh, to render him helpless. Now, the point of this story is not that you and I have to wrestle with God in order to get him to bless me. It's actually the complete opposite. It's only when you're done wrestling. It's only when you're through wrestling. It's only when you give up your games and your manipulations and you know you're helpless and vulnerable that you and I can be blessed. You and I do nothing to deserve the blessings of God. And when we understand that, then and only then can our life be blessed because it's in losing that we win. You see, what Jacob has come to understand is he's learned through one defeat what a lifetime of winning would never teach him. Being successful at getting approval from others is not meaningful. What we crave, what we need is the blessing of God, and that is coming face to face with what we really need. You see, Jacob had an ache, something more powerful than anything else he'd ever encountered. He's gone through life trying to fill this need for validation, to simply be loved and accepted for who he was. And at the end of this wrestling match, he finally understands it, and he says it out loud, I will not let you go, God, until you bless me. Now, do you know how long God had waited for Jacob to say those words? Forty years. You see, the blessing he stole from his brother didn't work. Years later, he still doesn't feel blessed. Many times as a kid, he'd look to dad and wanted to see that same gleam in his eye that he had for his brother, and it wasn't there. Every time he looked to dad, he wanted dad to take him under his wing and be proud of him, and it wasn't there. Every time, he just wanted dad to notice him and think, hey, I'm unique in my own way. I'm not like my brother, but I'm my own special kind of person. And dad would not validate that for Jacob. But you see, this other blessing he stole, he did know it wasn't for him. It was a case of mistaken identity. So he wrestled with his brother for the blessing. He wrestled with dad for the blessing. He wrestles with his shyster of an uncle for the blessing. And none of those blessings satisfy. 
every time it came up short. William Sloan Coffin said it best, we grasp for others' blessings only because we've never reached for and accepted the one blessing each of us needs, the blessing of God himself. Now here's the best part. When this wrestling match is over, Jacob knows something he never knew before, that God knows him through and through and loves him anyway. This is the single most revolutionary conclusion that any human being can ever make, that God knows us in our Jacobness, and he still loves us. God knows you in your cover-up. God knows you in your manipulations. God knows how you've tried to twist and make life work out for you the way you think it should work out for you, and God knows that's not working for you. But God, in this case, just loves you as you are where you are for who you are. You see, the, the attention I, I, I got in life was never enough. Praise and compliments never had staying power with me. When people told me they loved me, I always felt like, well, you love me for utilitarian reasons. You love me because of what I do for you. That way of living had to be broken in me because I was good at it. And I would have stayed being good at it and feeling unloved and unaccepted and unwanted until I was a very old man. And so that leads us to this, receiving a new name and a new acceptance. Look at this. The man asked him, what is your name? So God is asking Jacob, what is your name? When God asks you what's your name, it's not because he doesn't know. Okay? The God who knows everything knows your name. When God asks you your name, what he's saying is, what a name is in the Bible is your character, who you really are. He said, Jacob, tell me, what's your name? And when he says, my name's Jacob, don't hear that as that's the name my mom and dad gave me. Hear that as a confession it is. I'm the trickster. I'm the liar. I'm the manipulator. I'm the one that works every situation to my own advantage. I'm going to gain the advantage, whatever that means. If it means telling lies to my own family, I'll do that. Preparing to change starts with coming to grips with who we are, being honest about ourselves. And then God says, you're no longer going to be called Jacob, but Israel, which means God's fighter or God's striver. From here on out, Jacob's life changes. It's a night and day story. This is the pivot in the story. Now, in light of this story, what I love about the Bible, God changes the name of Jacob to Israel. But you know there's about 20 more times after this story that God refers to himself as the God of Jacob. He doesn't go say, I'm not I'm the God of Israel. Now, he says that too. But 20 more times he says, I'm the God of Jacob. Because you know what? God's still the God of Jacob. God's the God of every wounded soul. God's your God even when you feel like you've messed up and you've blown it, and you don't have a clue about where to start next. You, God is still your God when you feel like you've layered layer after layer on your life, and you lost yourself, and you have no idea who that person is inside. God says, I'm still the God of that person. I love that God is the God of Jacob. Now, one of the things that I think if we don't understand what we really crave, what we really need, we need from God, then we start putting that on other people. And we have these fantasies about finding the perfect friend or finding the perfect lover or finding the perfect mate or finding the perfect group of friends or companions. And you know what? Our parents are not perfect. We're not perfect. Your friends aren't perfect. Your mate's not perfect. Everybody eventually falls short. But we go through this illusion thinking that I can get all those needs met in another person like me who's as broken as I am. In fact, I was looking this past week at the Billboard's top 100 love songs. 
of all time. And I'm looking at some of these names like nothing compares to you and endless love and maybe I'm amazed and because you love me. And you know what the, all those songs have in common? They all use the language of worship to describe human love, which tells you where we're really at, doesn't it? I'm trying to put this burden of being truly loved and accepted for all that I am on people who are as imperfect as I am. And they will always fail. You know what we desperately need? We desperately need an experience of the unconditional love of God. It was David Benner, he's a well-known spiritual director, who once said, it's not the fact of the unconditional love of God that changes us. It's the experience of the unconditional love of God that changes us. Now think about the difference. Many of you in this room, maybe you've grown up in church or you've been around church for some time now, and you understand God loves us unconditionally. That's a truth taught in Scripture. But that's a truth up here. That doesn't mean you're living that truth or experiencing that truth. Knowing it up here is not going to transform your life. Experiencing it is what's going to change your life. And you do not experience the unconditional love of God in your life when everything's going great. You can only experience the unconditional love of God in your life when the wheels come off and you feel like a complete and total utter failure. And when God shows up at those times and lets you know that you're valuable, that you're worthy, that he loves you, that he's, he thought you were worth dying for, that when he shows up at that time, you'll believe it. You know, when I was at my most broken place, so this was two years into the church, 28 years ago now, and I knew I needed help, and I'd read about codependency and heard that 95% of all pastors are codependent. I've since come to understand 100% of them all, but 5% are liars. So 100% of pastors are codependent. And I didn't know exactly what that meant, but I knew my life was coming apart, my marriage was coming apart, and all my theology was not putting it back together. So I made my trek as far away from the church as I could to Arapahoe Road United Methodist Church that had a 12-step meeting for codependents over on Coit and Arapahoe Road. And I would go into that room and I would listen to other people share honestly about their brokenness and their story. And I'm thinking, my God, when as a church did we lose this level of authenticity? These people are telling my story and they're not even a part of my church. I mean, who are these people? But I felt like this complete and utter failure a leader needing to be led, a leader needing to be healed. And you know what? The truth is, is that all leaders need to be led and all leaders need to be healed. And as I sat there in my brokenness and just feeling like I was absolutely worthless, the scum of the earth, I just heard God in my spirit say, and I just love you so much right now. It's not the fact of the unconditional love of God that changes us. It's the experience of the unconditional love of God, that he shows up to us in our Jacobness, that God is a God that's not afraid to say, I am the God of Jacob. I am the God of every wounded soul. God is the God who's been watching over your life and knows the wounds that you've received from other people, that you did not get that perfect love and acceptance that you craved just for being who you are. And he's waiting for you to come to him when that self-life utterly fails you and you feel at your worst. And he says, welcome home. And you say, God, just bless me. And he says, I'm happy to do it. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for the power of story. And I thank you for the power of this story. For how it speaks so much to our modern condition. Human beings have not changed in thousands of years. The needs that we have are the needs that you put into our very first father and mother. 
that we have this craving to be loved and accepted for who we are. For someone who's in this room today, I pray that that self-life, that way of living to get their needs met in their own way by hook or by crook, by becoming what they really are not, that that would just utterly fail for them. And I pray that not so that they would go through bad times, but so that they might experience the best, and that is your love and acceptance that's guaranteed. I pray for the one who's feeling worthless, who's feeling alone, who's feeling totally abandoned and rejected. I pray, God, that you break through those self-incriminating thoughts with this message of your love and acceptance to their heart. And God, for anybody in this room that doesn't know you in a personal relationship, that they would understand that self-styled living will not ultimately get us to where we long to be, but it's only when we live in light of your love and experience that great love that then we have this capacity in our lives, in our family, and in our world to be a real agent of transformation because your love flows in us, through us, and out to others. I just pray, God, that someone would come to know you today. In Jesus' name, amen.